good morning, everybody, and welcome to Bethlehem Baptist Church. I hope you've enjoyed the ministry so far this morning. Well, as we know, we're all in our bubbles, aren't we, here in New Zealand? And uh, it's been a time when we've had to really knuckle down and hunker down for the season that we're in. But we had some exciting news this week as our bubble expanded uh, by one. Eight pound one is uh, the weight that young Toby came in at. And I'm really pleased to say that Toby's healthy and so is Melissa. Daniel's not so good, but uh, we'll look after him as well. And so it's been fantastic to have them with us and enjoy the experience of this new baby being born. Uh, and it's just brought so much more life and joy to our household and a few, a few uh, darkened eyes, I must say, from a few late nights and early mornings. But that's all part of it, isn't it? Well, last week, Rob and Monica did a fantastic job unpacking that parable of the sower. And it reminded me of how it was when I was first a Christian, when I'd look at that parable and I'd say, oh man, I, I just don't want to be the seed that falls on the ground and just is, is taken away by the birds of the air, or it gets overwhelmed by weeds, or it dries up uh, because of a, a lack of nourishment. I wanted to be the, the seed that produces 30, 60, 100 fold. So I look at that parable and I see, man, it's a, a parable for a lifetime, isn't it? Because we always are challenged by the things that can overwhelm us and the weeds of this world can quickly destroy what it is that God's planted in our lives. But this morning we're going to continue on and look at how it is that Jesus faced opposition when he presented to the world that he lived in a kingdom, an alternative perspective on reality, an alternative vision of how the world can be and what God had intended. How important was this kingdom message? Well, let me take you to some scripture and remind you of how important the message of the kingdom of God was to Jesus. We're going to talk, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 4 and get ourselves started with this passage of scripture. Let's have a look at it. Verses 40 to 44. At sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness, and laying his hands on each one of them, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him, and they came to where he was. They tried to keep him from leaving. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So Jesus said, I must go and preach the kingdom of God to other towns that are near, because that is the reason I have been sent. And yet what he did is he left the town where there may well be more sick people, more people who were struggling with demon possession, uh, and, and he abandoned them, in a sense, abandoned them. Why? Because he had to go off and preach about the kingdom of God. And it's this kingdom of God that we're trying to get our heads around, isn't it? Now, the challenge that uh, Jesus faced was that he was intimidated throughout his ministry by the religious elite and the political elite, those who ruled the country at a religious and political level. And this confrontation that he ran into started very, very early in his life. In fact, what I want to do now is take you to Bethlehem and remind you of what it was that he encountered even before he was born or maybe in the early days of his early life and remind us of what it was that he was facing with respect to the political powers, namely in the day, Herod the Great. And Herod was great. 
He was a great leader in the worldly sense. He was powerful. He was wealthy. He was well connected back to Rome. And he had a campaign to build these incredible buildings that would be his legacy to the world. And he wanted his name to be known. He was a powerful, powerful man. And uh, if you go to Israel today, you'll even see the architecture, the legacy there of some of the buildings that remain from 2,000 years ago. But let's just go back to a simple story that we know really well in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. And we'll just go through these and remind ourselves of this early interaction between Herod the Great and Jesus. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So here we have these wise men, as we know them, turning up and asking King Herod, where is this one who was born the king of the Jews? Now, for a king like King Herod to hear about another king who's just been born, that would have been a warning sign to somebody who had such a fragile ego as, as King Herod. And so when uh, the Magi are sent on their way, um, of course, Herod immediately sets a trap where he's saying to them, I will, um, I'll come and worship too. Let's read that scripture as well. Matthew chapter 2, verses 7 to 8. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. So see here it's setting up the Magi, the wise men saying, when you find this young king, this newborn baby, send word to me so that I can come and worship him. Well, some years ago, we had those billboards for um, Tui Beer, and uh, they put up a statement on the side that say, yeah, right. Uh, this is one of those moments, really, when we see scripture and we say, here is going to go and worship this newborn king. Yeah, right. That's just not going to happen. So how does this story end? Well, it ends really badly, not for Jesus, but it ends really, really badly and sadly. Let me read to you from um, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 16. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the wise men. Amen. So you can see the tragedy there, can't you, of the fact that young boys were killed just because they had an association with that area where the king had been born. Uh, it's been said of Herod that he was one of the most evil of all men. And therefore, for Jesus to have been born in this time and to establish a new kingdom right under the nose of a guy who was so powerful and evil, uh, well, really, only God could have set that up in such a way to give Jesus such a victory. Caesar Augustus said of King Herod the Great, he said, I would much rather be King Herod's pig than King Herod's son. Why was that? Well, Herod got to the point where he was so intimidated by the possibility of his sons superseding them um, that he actually ordered some of his sons to be executed, including also his own wife, their mother. And so that's why Caesar Augustus said, I'd rather be Herod's pig. And so you can see the, the evil and the power of this man that existed. So the thing about human nature is that it, it is powerful. 
in as much as it seeks power and it is powerful in its way that it continues to exude itself, even in company that um, is moving in a completely different spirit. Jesus was confronted by the religious leaders of the day, and whenever they would see him perform a miracle, they were looking for the opportunity to diminish him, arguing with his um, his teaching, but arguing, saying, what good comes from Nazareth? Arguing about the way in which he performed a miracle, saying, oh, you violated some little principle in the law. You shouldn't be healing on the Sabbath. You know, things that Jesus would do, where he would spit on the ground, make mud, and put that on a person's eye, and then bring uh, a restoration of their sight. They would, they would debate that he shouldn't have spat on the ground because that made mud and making mud is work and you can't do that on the Sabbath. And so these religious folks really had it in for Jesus. Uh, but of course, within the, the soul of the disciples, they too didn't understand what this kingdom was all about. They didn't understand it. Let, let's be reminded of this by um, Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verse 51 to 56. And this is a story that, that frightens us. Well, it should frighten us because we too, as Christians, followers of Jesus, can easily play the power game. And the kingdom of God is not a kingdom of power in the sense that the world interprets power. But let's remind ourselves of these two brothers, James and John, and um, how it is that they responded to being pushed back by some Samaritans. Uh, let's read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. As the time approached for him, Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead, who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him, because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. Amen. Doesn't it surprise you that Jesus' own disciples, over three years into the ministry, three years of living life with Jesus, still saw that the establishment of Jesus' reign and rule was about raw power? Now, they were in some sense on the right track because they wanted God to deal with those who were rejecting them. They weren't going to do it in their own strength. Quite simple, pray a prayer, call down fire from heaven, a little bit like Elijah did to the prophets of Baal. Quite biblical, you they could almost argue, couldn't they? That uh, we're going to do exactly what we saw the prophets do. And uh, just being biblical doesn't mean that you're right. And here's an example of that. You see, the power that Jesus is describing is the power of a servant, not the power of a, somebody who lords it over them. And so James and John, for all of their enthusiasm, they got it wrong, even though they thought they were getting it right. But let's have a look at uh, further on in Luke's gospel and how it was that, um, that Jesus put into perspective what it is that, um, that the disciples should be doing. And you'll be very surprised at the timing and the context of this story, because here is Jesus correcting his disciples once again, immediately after they've just taken communion in what we know as the Last Supper. It's a, it's a powerful story, again, of an insight into just how close these disciples were to Jesus and yet how much they were missing this message about the kingdom of God. So let's look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 24. 
A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Well, let's just stop there for a moment. These guys have just completed the Lord's Supper. Jesus broken bread, shared the cup, told them that he would not drink with this, eat and drink with them again until they're in the kingdom with him in heaven. And a dispute breaks out around that table as to who is going to be the greatest. I, I, I don't know if you can imagine what it must have been like for Jesus. I, I can only imagine, I'm sure he didn't, but just stop in that moment and banged his head against the table and thought, what on earth is going on here? He is only literally 24 hours away from the trial and the crucifixion. And uh, his disciples are debating amongst themselves about who's the best. This is just mind-blowing. Instead of getting angry, though, Jesus says these words, and it's very encouraging for us because we see Jesus continuing to teach and to lean into them and remind them of who they are. But let's read uh, from verses 25 to 30. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Amen. Do you notice there how Jesus said, I confer upon you a kingdom, just as my father has given me a kingdom. You see, Jesus' ministry always comes back to this picture of the kingdom. And uh, it was not about power, it's not about authority. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, I confer upon you a kingdom. I give that kingdom to you. But it won't be built like the pagans or the Gentiles built it, where people lord over one another. Indeed, it's going to be built in a way that is built around servanthood. And the world is turned upside down. Jesus is saying, don't look at the world the way that the Gentiles do. Don't look at the person who's at the table as being the greatest. Look at the one who is serving. That is the person who's the greatest there. And it's a, it's a reminder to us of what it was that Jesus was taking his disciples through. And we as disciples also must be reminded that we too are the ones who should serve. This is the way the kingdom works. It's an upside down kingdom. And once we start to grasp this, we can see how it is that it works. Uh, but, but let's have a look at another passage in Matthew's gospel where Jesus simultaneously takes on the religious leaders as well as taking on the political powers, all within one very, very tight moment. So let's turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, verses 18 and 19. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? Amen. The symbol that's being used here is of Israel, the nation, God's chosen people. They are the fig tree. And in this particular case, at this time of the year, Jesus was looking for what is deemed to be known as an early fig. 
And uh, it was right to assume by Jesus that this fig tree that was green uh, should have had fruit there, but it didn't. And what Jesus is doing is he's using this as a symbol to speak about the nation of Israel. After three years of his ministry, there should have been evidence of the kingdom of God being established. Jesus was looking for fruit from the religious elite, but there wasn't. And so Jesus curses the fig tree. And this is a symbol to say that the nation of Israel too will be cursed. It had an opportunity to produce early fruit, uh, but it doesn't. And as we know, the gospel essentially goes to the Gentiles, those who are outside of the kingdom as we knew it at the time, those who are outside of the people of God, outside of the nation. And it is the early fruit that is, 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 is lacking. And so Jesus goes bringing the gospel, if you like, to those who are outside of the nation of Israel. So here Jesus is symbolizing, but using a very powerful metaphor to describe that he was looking for early fruit from the religious people of the day, but he didn't get it. But the story goes on, and it's a remarkable story because Jesus completely switches in this conversation. Let's read on and see how he addresses the political powers of the day as well. Matthew 21, verses 20 to 22. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to this fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Amen. So isn't this a remarkable little story? Jesus is saying to the disciples, you can say to a fig tree, be cursed, and it too will die. What Jesus is referring to here is saying, you can kill off, if you like, for lack of better words, or destroy or wither a religious system that doesn't bear any fruit. And so Jesus is saying, you can change, you can transform a religious system by preaching the kingdom of God, a fruitless kingdom. But then Jesus goes on to say something quite remarkable. He says, but you can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea and it will be done by faith. Now, people try to understand what this really means. But in this context, Jesus was leaving Bethany, heading towards Jerusalem. And it's a relatively flat area. But in the distance, dominating uh, the landscape is a, is a little mountain. And that little mountain has become famous in Herod's time. Why? Because Herod took a little mountain and he turned it into a big mountain. What he did was he enslaved thousands of people and they built up this mountain so that Herod could build a palace on top of it. And so it was dominating the landscape there as a, as a picture of Herod's political power and his political aspirations. And so when Jesus is saying, uh, you can say to this mountain, notice how Jesus is very specific. He says, you say to this mountain. He doesn't say, you can say to any mountain. He says, well, you say to this mountain. And the reference would not have been lost on anyone. This mountain, that one that Herod is living in, that one that he used slave labor to build up and put his castle upon, his palace upon, you can say to this mountain, be cast into the sea. That you do by faith. And what Jesus is doing here is he's describing what the kingdom of God looks like. The kingdom of God has power to permeate, 
the power to change, the power to persuade, the power is, is, is what Jesus is describing here, the power to change religious organizations that don't produce fruit, the power to change political, um, uh, well, not so much political events, but for the political powers themselves to ensure that worlds can be changed. So much of what we see that represents the kingdom of God in today's environment is so inward looking. It's all about your own personal peace. It's about personal salvation. It's about personal uh, qualities that you're looking for. Jesus is saying that's good, but don't miss the big picture. The big picture is when we preach the kingdom of God, the world changes. The world changes. And it's the power of an idea, a power of an idea, a good idea, a good idea that is God's idea, a good idea that is God's idea, empowered by the Spirit. And this brings about a revolutionary change. Let me explain to the, this a little bit in a little bit of a different way. So when we look at Christianity, we look at uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. We see 12 disciples who are still literally arguing over who's going to be the greatest the night before Jesus dies. And we say, how on earth did this message get to be so powerful? How is it that uh, Jesus is the greatest known figure in history? Well, it's simply because the power of the understanding of the kingdom of God permeates and gets underneath and is empowered by God. And I just want to remind us of what the values of the kingdom are by reading to us some of the verses from a well-known sermon given to none other by, than by, none other by Jesus. And so let's turn to the Sermon on the Mount and just refresh ourselves for a moment of what this kingdom message is all about. Matthew 5, verses 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. The kingdom of God started with an idea. A picture of an alternative world that Jesus spoke about, not only speak about, but he sent his spirit at Pentecost so that we could live an empowered life where God would be uh, breaking out of the natural into the supernatural through us through works of power, through works of miraculous answers to prayer, through the pushing back of principalities and powers, uh, not only spiritual, but political. And the understanding that we see of the early church is that it set up communities that lived and loved and allowed these principles of the kingdom to permeate everything they do. And so in the living together in these ways of honoring one another, blessing the poor, seeking the best for each other, as Jesus would suggest we do, uh, they've developed a community which started to transform society. And it really came into its own, this early movement called the church, when there was a pandemic. That's right. When there was a pandemic, um, plagues started to hit Europe in the second century in a really big way. Uh, Emperor 
Marcus Aurelius was the emperor of Rome in 165 AD, 165 years after Christ. And uh, the, the historians there record how it is that the pagans just left town in their droves, leaving all these sick people to fend for themselves. Even families just literally abandoned those that they supposedly loved, put them on the streets so, to die so that they could avoid getting this plague. It was the Christians who came in and started to serve, and it was noted at that time. But a hundred years later, uh, Bishop Dionysius, at the time living in Rome, commented how, again, the pagans abandoned the families, but the Christians stepped up and just started to love on others in the same fashion they'd been loving on each other, showing mercy, showing care. And it was commented on about how this charity given by the Christians uh, was deemed to be super uh, influential, very powerful in its presentation of this person, Jesus, whom they, they worshipped. Uh, if you roll on only another 50 years, Emperor Constantine becomes a Christian. And this is the turning point because, because of the influence of these Christians in serving in the way that they established the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, uh, the influence was really, really powerful in Rome. And so Constantine, after his own personal conversion, declares that Rome is now a Christian empire. Well, that wasn't the end of it because in the fourth century, another plague came and started to wreak havoc through Rome and Europe again. And this went on for years. And what happened then was Emperor Julian at the time petitioned the pagan priest because he wanted to turn Rome back to a pagan culture. Why? Because he wanted to be the center of their worship. That's what happens in pagan culture. And so he asked his pagan priests to try to emulate or copy what it was that the Christians were doing. Well, they tried, but they couldn't. They couldn't meet the, uh, the level of mercy or charity that was shown because they simply had no tradition. Uh, they had no examples to go by. They had no doctrines. Uh, their understanding of, of hope was completely different to what a Christian was asked to do, as in, i.e., to lay your life down for your brother. Why? Because we know that there is a, there is a heaven that awaits us. Um, all of these things that the pagans tried to uh, reproduce was completely lost because the Christians were working out of an understanding of the kingdom of heaven. They were living together, loving on each other, and what they were doing was extending this to those who were desperately desperate and needing the help that only God could give in a powerful pandemic plague at the time. So friends, when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, we're talking about the establishment of a king, King Jesus. And there's no doubt that when you're establishing a king, then the present powers and principalities are going to shake and shudder at the thought of somebody else rising up against them. King Herod tried to do it, tried to slaughter little children. Jesus continued to push back and remind people that he was preaching a kingdom that was not of this world. But in saying that, it permeated everything that people did. It changes and changed the world in which we live in. And so we celebrate, don't we? Even in today's world, in our pandemic, we celebrate those who give themselves sacrificially to the cause. And that can be people in the medical fraternity, it can be people working in essential services. But all of this stems not from a pagan culture, but a Christian background, a Judeo-Christian background. 
And we're reminded in the midst of this pandemic just how powerful the words of Jesus are as they have shaped our world. Because we see people sacrificing. We see people giving up what it is that they have to love on the least of these, those who are most desperate in this time. And so, friends, regardless of what the world may think about Jesus, the values are being outworked, and the world has been completely transformed by the demonstration of Jesus' life and the early church that set an example that changed the world. What a fantastic example for us to, to, to finish on today, to see how it is that the kingdom of God is being outworked today, even in the midst of the most trying of times. So let's pray together. Father, as we stop and pause and think about the kingdom of God again, we realize that uh, there's so much more to it than just a personal relationship with Jesus, but the powerful capacity to change the world around us, to establish a kingdom that is not of this world and yet is deeply, deeply entrenched, permeated within the world in which we live. God, we thank you that uh, we see examples of this sacrifice through so many people on the front line in this time around the world as this COVID virus uh, continues to take hold in so many nations. And yet at the same time, Lord, we give you tremendous thanks for how it is that uh, we are living in the relative peace and calm of this country of New Zealand. God, we trust that in this time, as we move forward in what is being a world reshaped around us, that we can be reminded that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is powerful and present in every action, in every prayer, in every word that we bring. So let us remind ourselves, Lord, that we are firstly of your kingdom, and, uh, and that is going to guide us and strengthen us into the future, whatever the future is going to bring. And we thank you for this hope, and we thank you for your love, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Hope you have a fantastic week.